What a beautiful day. Happy Easter. It's such a, it's such a wonderful day to worship Jesus. This is the day, right? This, everything hinges upon this day and why we celebrate this day. Uh, we also have to say, I guess, um, April Fool's Day too, right? <laughs> you got any April Fool's out there this morning? So I just got to tell you about South City. We're so glad you're here. But one of the things about our church is we love to laugh. We love to have fun. And so hopefully this is okay. But right now, all of your cars are being wrapped in toilet paper just for fun. <laughs> it's just a, yeah. Hopefully you won't, you won't mind that too. Some of you are like, uh-uh, no. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, listen, we love to laugh here, and it is April Fool's Day. And, you know, lately, in the last several months, we've had a lot of donuts at church. We didn't have donuts today. And I thought, you know, it would be kind of funny if we did something like this. If we had donuts, but there really weren't donuts, there were vegetables in there. <laughs> but that's just, that's like evil. That's not even mean. That's like a whole nother step beyond... There is nothing right about that. So we, we didn't want to do that. But listen, I've noticed, you know, this is obviously a wonderful day to prank people. And it's, it's gone around for a long time. And, and for some reason, there's a lot of pranks going on in uh, the office place. I don't know if we just like to mess with people in the office place or what the deal is. But there's a lot of pranks that happen in the office place. Like, uh, like this one, for instance, for, the, for the, the guy who hates cats. That's, you, you need to do this for his desk, right? This, this needs to happen. Or maybe the lady that wears Christmas sweaters every day of December. You could maybe just go ahead and complete the deal with her, her desk, you know. Or, or maybe um, the quiet lady who's always shushing everybody. Now, listen, if you pull this one, make sure that she's young enough to handle the, the hard action on that one, okay. Um, for the obnoxious stapler guy that's always slamming the stapler, that guy. You got to do Jello stapler, you know. And every time when I saw this, I thought the first thing I thought was, what, the office, right? We saw this in the office, and so it just made me think about the office. In the in this show, the office, Jim is always pranking Dwight, and this was a good one. I thought it'd be good to show up Feelies. This was a good. The first one was Jim basically um, dressing up like Dwight to mess with him, and this next one was. He did the, the Christmas wrap, right? But he made it look like there was a chair, and he goes to sit down. There's no real chair. But I think the very best office prank ever was fake Jim. You remember fake Jim? Uh, so Dwight had no idea who this guy was, but he knew everything that Jim knew. And, and Jim's wife even comes over and gives him a kiss. It was hilarious. It was, it was wonderful. Hey, listen, April Fool's has gone on for a long, long time. I didn't know this. I started looking at it this week. Turns out April Fool's has been happening since like the 1600s. In England, people started telling, uh, especially visitors, that there was an event that was going to go on at the Tower of England. And the event was going to be uh, the washing of the lions. And so it became sort of such a thing that at some point, it started in the 1600s, but at some point they started making tick tickets and giving it to, to tourists. Now, first of all, if anybody says that they're washing lions, don't go to that. That doesn't seem like the thing that should happen, period. But anyway, this, ha this, is, this is dated in the middle of the 1800s. This is April Fool's joke, all right? Uh, America has their own kind of funny things. We, we did a thing, uh, well, Taco Bell did a thing back in 19-something. They were going to purchase, they said they were purchasing the, the Philadelphia Liberty Bell, and they were going to name it the Taco Liberty Bell, which makes sense to me, right? It would have looked something like this. Or, of course, Burger King had to, to up them with 1998 with the left-handed Whopper. How many left-handed people we have in 
This is a perfect burger for you. You know what I'm saying? What's funny is Burger King didn't expect this, but they had an overwhelming response to the left-handed Whopper. I mean, people showed up for the left-handed Whopper. Of course, it's the same thing as the right-handed Whopper. But people showed up for this, this cheeseburger, and uh, I don't know if that says something about how we're a cruel society or if it just says something about left-handed people. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But the thing we need to know today on April Fool's, keep the jokes maybe down to a minimum because there's two sides to every prank, right? One side that, that is the fun part, and we get to laugh at people, and the other is, unfortunately, the side that gets laughed at. And it's never fun to be made a fool. It's never fun to be made feel like we're a fool. The dictionary says that the uh, definition of a fool is somebody who is silly or, or stupid or somebody who lacks judgment or sense, right? That's what a fool is. But the reality is many of us choose to live foolishly. Many of us live our lives in such a way that we're foolish. And that yet some of us live our lives in such a way that we try to honor God and yet the people who've been living the way they want to think we're foolish, right? So the irony here this morning is that I want to show you two different types of fools. The message title is A Tale of Two Fools. And the thing that I want you to see is that it's going to come down to perspective. Now, the Bible says a lot about uh, fools. I want to show you a few of these passages. A lot of information about fools. If you put in the word fool in a Bible uh, software or something online, you'll get a ton of information. I wanted to show you just a few. Luke 12, 19 says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So what he's saying here is that, listen, you're only trusting in yourself. If you're just trusting in your job and the money that you've acquired and the things that you have, the, the most toys, the person with the most toys wins, that kind of thing. He says, you're a fool, right? It's the same thing as Jesus kind of saying uh, the, the thing in Luke when he says, you know, uh, the, the man who, who tries to, to gain the whole world but loses his soul. He's a fool. He's a fool. Proverbs 28 says this, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So in other words, if you just trust in what you know and you're not teachable, you're not willing to listen to anybody else, you're a fool. In fact, it's kind of uh, says sort of the same thing in Proverbs 1. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction, right? But the main, but the main example that I want us to focus on this morning is the verse in Psalms, Psalms 14, verse 1. It also says this in Psalms 53, verse 1. And this is the one I want you to really consider in your heart today. And it says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's, according to scripture, that's a fool. Now, I don't know if you've noticed recently there is a, uh, there's a scientist that passed away recently, a very famous scientist, Stephen Hawking. And this man was brilliant. I don't know a lot about Hawking, but I know he was brilliant and a lot of people considered him to be a very brilliant man. But this man actually is known for saying that the universe has a grand design. It has a grand design, but God has nothing to do with it. In fact, he's known for saying, there is no God. And what's crazy is, with all his earthly brilliance, and all that he understands, and all that he can explain, and all that he understood, the Bible called him a fool. Called him a fool. And see, the reality is much of the world believes the same way he did. Believe that 
for those of us who do believe there is a God, that we're fools. See, the, the funny thing here this morning is that the two fools, one is a fool because he doesn't believe, the other is a fool because he does. So I want to explain this to you. This is coming out of, of Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1. If, you're, if you brought your Bible or if you want to look on, you, you can do that this morning. Chapter 1, verse Corinthians, verse 18 out of the message says this. It says, the message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works. And most powerfully, as it turns out, it's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. Now, while Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go on in for a philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ the crucified. Jews treat this like an anti-miracle and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us, who are personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. Human wisdom is so tiny and impotent. Next to the seeming absurdity of God, human strength can't begin to compete with God's, quote, weakness. See, the thing Paul's writing to the Corinthians here is he's saying, for people who live in this world, they think for, for those of us that trust Jesus, they, they call it foolishness. In fact, he's saying what you're doing right now, what you're doing in this moment right now, listening to somebody preach about Jesus, the world says is dumb. But for those of us who know Christ, for those of us who have found this treasure of who Jesus really is relationally, we know there's more, right? We know there's truth involved and it's changed us. I love this, this verse here um, that he says Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. Let me tell you why I love it, because that's my story. That's my story. I, I grew up in church. In fact, I grew up in this church. And I knew a lot about God. I had learned a lot of things about God. But somehow, the things I knew about God hadn't made their way into my actual life. So the things I knew weren't making their way into how I lived and who I was. Does that make sense? So that's what, that's what I was doing. That's what I was becoming whatever I wanted. I knew some things, but I didn't honor Christ. And, and one day, I was in high school, and I won't bore you with the details, but all I can tell you is God revealed himself to me in such a beautiful and miraculous way. I was in a drunken stupor, and I was being an idiot, and God saved my life. He rescued my life. And when I woke up from that, I realized God had given me in his mercy and his grace the miracle of a rescue. In that moment, I knew in my heart, God was saying, you know you should have died last night. You know you should have died, but you didn't because I love you. And my grace is enough for you. Listen, that was a miracle for me. And in that moment, I realized God had revealed himself to me. And my life changed just like that. And then all of a sudden, the things that I knew in my head 
truly begin to make their way into my heart and into my life. It was a miracle. And it was also the greatest wisdom ever. You know why? Because it's the best decision I've ever made in my whole life. It is by far the best decision I have ever made. God revealed himself to me, changed my heart and my life in an instant. And it was the greatest decision I'd ever made. You know, somebody who also has that testimony is, is the Apostle Paul. You know, he was Saul before he was persecuting the church. And Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. And I mean, just like that, Paul goes from somebody who's a persecutor to somebody who's persecuted. Because it's just a matter of days that he realizes, wait, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah that I know all about, that I've read about. He is the Messiah. And now it's my job, it's all of our jobs who know him, to make him known. And so Paul becomes from persecutor to preacher, right? He, he's the one who, who, who's, he's done everything he can to stamp out this way, this new Christian thing. He didn't want it to happen until Jesus did something miraculous and he made the most wise decision he's ever made to obey and follow Jesus. In a matter of days, Paul changes his whole life, his whole understanding of who Jesus is. So one of the things that keeps people from church, keeps people from God, is the reality of the resurrection. Today's Easter, and so we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. For those of us that believe, we know that he was raised from the grave, right? But even still, some of us kind of go, yeah, I, I believe that, but man, how in the world did that happen? Dead things are supposed to stay dead, right? How does something dead come to life? How has that happened? And I want you to know, if you, if you struggle with that question this morning, <laughs> you're not alone because even the early church struggled with the question of resurrection. They didn't know if it, it could happen, if it was real. And so Paul goes in, in, uh, later in this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, I want us to look at it, and begins to explain the resurrection. Now I want you to remember the Corinthians are a, a bunch of people who, they don't care so much about facts and faith. They want to philosophize about everything, right? They want to just work out what the deeper meanings could be, but they weren't seeing the facts as, as what they truly were. And Paul lays it out beautifully for them in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start at verse 3. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, to Paul. Now listen, what's interesting about this little text of Scripture is this. So this is considered in the early church a creed. In other words, the people in Corinth would probably have known this section of scriptures. This is the kind of thing you hang on the wall and say, this is what our church, our faith our, is going to be founded upon. This is a creed. In other words, Paul is reminding them of who they are. And he's reminding them about the resurrection. This is not just some isolated event. He says this, remember, remember, the resurrection has all been foretold in scripture. This story is much bigger than just somebody's experience. This is the story of God Almighty. For thousands of years, this has been prophesied in the Old Testament. Over 300 
prophecies of Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. And Paul is leading them back to that prophecy. And he's saying, listen, Jesus' resurrection has been foretold in Scripture. That's why he says in these verses 3 and 4, he says, Christ died for our sins in what? Accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. And then Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what we've been reading. This is what we've known all along in the Word of God. This is, this is him leading them back to the true story of Christ. And the second thing he wants them to see is, hey, listen, this really happened. And Paul kind of goes into his apologetic here. And Paul's saying, listen, there are eyewitnesses to what happened. There are eyewitnesses to what happened, okay? And then he goes down the list. He says, listen, this is what happened. First, he, he appears to Peter. And then he appears to to uh, the disciples, and then 500 other men, and then to James and all the apostles, and then to me. What he's saying is, there's a lot of people who saw this, and this is what's interesting. Have you ever considered this? Paul's also saying, hey, they're still alive. Go talk to them. He says, now some of them have fallen asleep, but the majority of the people that are in this list, you can go talk with them. Can you imagine? Yeah, I'm just going to kind of question that. I think I'll go find, talk to Peter, see how this went. That's what he's saying. And listen, if there was any question in Paul's heart that it didn't happen, you think he'd say, go talk to somebody? He knew this happened. His apologetic was, there's an eyewitness testimony of over 500 people who says that it happened. Go talk to him anytime you want. And they'll tell you the truth of his resurrection. You know, a great resource for me this week has been uh, this book called A Case for Christ. It's a great little book. And uh, it's written by a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. And Lee was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist, did not believe in God. But his wife found Christ. And so as she's growing in the Lord, he's not happy about it. In fact, I'll just tell you, if you're not much a reader, it's on Netflix right now. They made a really great movie about it. It's called The Case for Christ. It's on Netflix. But basically, his story is that, you know what, I don't want my wife changing like this. I don't want her becoming this Christian. And so as an investigative reporter for the Tribune, I'm going to disprove the claims of Christianity. And so he approaches the Christian faith with just a blank slate. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to test the facts. I'm going to have interviews with psychologists and Bible scholars and all these people. And I'm going to see what all this is about. And then I'm going to disprove this to my wife so I can get my wife back. (laughs) But he came up with something he didn't realize he was going to come up with. Strobel ends up becoming a Christian. One of the things that he says in the book, he says, can you imagine if a crime was committed and there were 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses to the crime, would there be any chance that that crime could have a not not guilty verdict? Was there any possible way? 500 people watched this crime take place. There is no question There's no question that that you couldn't prove that this happened because of 500. That's exactly what we have with the resurrection of Jesus, this eyewitness testimony. He also says in his book that it's important to notice the circumstantial evidence. Basically what that is, uh, is when you're trying to prove a crime, you don't just prove necessarily eyewitness testimony, but you prove the things that the crime caused. What happened as a circumstance of that crime? And so on your card this morning, I've listed some of that circumstantial evidence, and I want you to look at that because 
It's very compelling. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that the disciples died proclaiming the truth of the resurrection. Listen, they had seen Jesus. They experienced his life. They watched him die on a cross. They watched a Roman soldier shove a spear into his heart. They watched him slump in death. They watched his body carried off and placed in a tomb. There was no question Jesus was dead. If those Roman soldiers would let him off the cross, they would die. They too made sure that Jesus was dead. And all the disciples go to their graves proclaiming that the resurrection really happened. And you know what's neat? I love this. They saw life beyond death. They saw Jesus alive. They saw Jesus die. And they saw Jesus come back to life. So they said, you know what? What is death to us? We'll take this truth to our grave because we will live again. We will live again. Uh, Chuck Colson, I don't know if you know that name. Chuck Colson was involved in the Watergate scandal. And, uh, you know, I wasn't too old when that whole thing went down, so I don't know. It's a little sketchy to me. But um, he spent some time in prison. One of the things he said in prison was this. He said, there's no question to me that the resurrection is real. He said, this is how I know. He said there were 12 men who were indicted into the Watergate scandal, and they all gave up the truth of their lie within a matter of weeks. He said there were 12 men that had the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, and they took it to their grave for over 40 years living with the truth. It's because they didn't have a lie. They had to make sure it was all set out. They took it to their grave because it was the truth. He says there's no way otherwise this could have happened unless it was absolutely the truth. Here's the second thing. He says skeptics are converted. This is a big deal. Skeptics are converted, and one of those is Jesus' brother James. The Bible tells us in, in John 7 that James and uh, his brothers didn't believe. At some point, his brothers were struggling, like, you're who again? You're going to do what now? And yet in church history, we know that James is stoned to death as pastor of the church at Jerusalem because of what he believed about the resurrection. Let me tell you something, my friends. You don't die for a lie. Would you? Would you die for a lie? Or would you die for the complete truth? And if you knew it was the truth beyond the shadow of a doubt, James was a skeptic, but he died as a believer in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul, named Saul, right? He had the miracle of his transformation on the road to Damascus. He was a skeptic. He didn't want to see this church take off. Jesus revealed himself to him, and his life completely changed and we know in church history that Paul, later in Rome, is beheaded for his faith in Christ. And we also know the work that Paul did in the church all around the Middle East. It's unbelievable what he did, what God accomplished through him. But you don't die for a lie. Here's another thing. The entire Jewish community and social structure completely changed. This is what I mean. The Jewish way of life had been, go had been going on for thousands of years, Right? And for over 1,500 years, there was, say, a sacrificial system. In other words, to have your sins forgiven, you would bring an animal and you, it would be sacrificed on the altar. Well, listen, I mentioned this last week when we were talking about Jesus as the Passover lamb. When Jesus was sacrificed as the Passover lamb, there was no more need for other sacrifice. Especially for the Christian. He was it. He was enough. And to this day, he's enough. But you know what? What's interesting is this. When 
the temple was torn down in 70 AD, the sacrificial system just goes away. Even for the Jews, they don't sacrifice anymore. That's because Jesus is enough. They were dogmatic about obeying laws. These, these Jews who become Christians, the laws are not as important. They're, le- they're learning about grace. It, they, their whole social structure changes. They, they believed there was one God. For thousands of years, their religion said, we believe there's one God, and now they're being baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, Jesus, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. Now they're worshiping a triune God. They changed when they worshiped, right? They were supposed to rest and worship on Saturday, and now they're worshiping on Sunday, the day that the Lord rose again, the Lord's day. Listen to how important this is. Their social structure changed in such a way that it changed who they worshiped, how they worshiped, and when they worshiped. This was a big deal. It's a a big circumstantial evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. What about the growth of the church? I mean, the church begins to explode. 10,000 people come to know Christ in in five weeks. And then 100,000 people come to know Christ in five months. And the Holy Spirit of God is moving through Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and the word of God is being dispersed all around the earth. It's this unbelievable thing that only God can do. People are seeing, they knew Jesus did miracles. They knew Jesus died. They saw Jesus raised again. The testimony of over 500 believers is going out of the truth of his resurrection, right? They're seeing Jesus do miracles, and now the apostles are doing miracles. God is doing a work that only he could do through his Holy Spirit. And then the last thing I want you to see is that to this day, to this day, there are people coming to know Jesus. <laughs> In every culture, nation, tribe, and tongue, rich and poor, young and old, every culture, people are coming to know Jesus as their Savior. And if they know him, they would tell you, listen, this is real. I, my life is not the same. There's nothing about me that's the same as when I didn't know Christ. I've changed That is evidence of the truth of his resurrection. So Paul is still struggling with some folks who are struggling with, could this really happen? And so he speaks a little bit further and deeper to it in in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Can you go there, there with me and let's look at this. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen to what Paul is saying here. Paul's making it very clear. Listen, if if Christ were not truly raised from the dead, do you realize the implications here? He's saying, number one, Jesus is not alive if that's the case. Our preaching means nothing and, and we're lying to you. Our faith has no meaning. We're still dead in our sins. There's no hope for those who've already died. And if we're just living some religion, while we're alive, then we of all people really are the fools. 
We, of all people, really ought to be pitied. But I want you to look at verse 20. Would you look at verse 20 just for a moment? Just look at the, the first few words here. Verse 20, he says, and we're going to stop. He says, but in fact. You see that? Paul says, but in fact. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? It's my opinion. He doesn't say, you know what? I've heard. He doesn't say, you know, there's, there's some rumors that. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Hallelujah. Listen to what this is saying. This is saying, Christ is not dead. Christ has been raised. He has been raised, and his resurrection is what Paul calls the first fruits. In other words, he'll be the first one resurrected. And then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, who know him, will be resurrected. But I want you to see the implications of this, how important this is. The fact that Christ is raised from the, from the dead. Look at, look at this. This is what it means for us. It means he is who he says he was. Right? It means he can do all that he said he can do. It means Jesus' power is greater than sin and the grave. It means his resurrection promises life after death for everyone who is in Christ. Somebody say hallelujah this morning. Here's the next thing it does, and this is no small thing. His resurrection reverses the curse of sin. Think about this just for a second. He says up here at the very end, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I want to remind you of Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. When God told Adam and Eve, he said, Be fruitful and multiply in this perfect place. But don't eat from that tree. That one tree, don't eat from that tree. And what did Adam and Eve do, right? Right? And they died. Did they die that moment? Spiritually they did. Phys are they here today? No. They died. God's word to them, God's promise to them of death for disobedience happened. They began to die in that instance, spiritually. And eventually they died physically. And what they caused was this infection of disease, of sin over mankind. Over every one of humanity, this sin that, that we have no hope from, apart from what Jesus did and apart from what his resurrection solves and reverses in us. See, the curse was that death would happen and Jesus, in his resurrection, as the first fruits of those who be raised, he reverses the curse. That's why Paul is speaking this. Listen to this, church. <laughs> because Christ is risen... He is alive. Amen? Our preaching is not in vain. We're telling you the truth. When we preach, we're telling you the truth. Our faith, our faith does have purpose. It does have meaning. We're not still dead in our sins. Hallelujah, we're not still dead in our sins. There is hope for those who've passed away. We live not just for this earthly life, but for all of eternity. And so what we learn of Christ, when we worship Christ, that doesn't just go away when we're buried in the ground. 
we take those things with us in our relationship with Jesus for all of eternity. And there is absolutely no reason that we should be pitied. No reason we should be pitied because what the world calls foolishness, God calls faithfulness. We believe that he is risen. It's the truth. It's the truth. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, you don't die for a lie. Elliot was willing to die for the truth of the resurrection. This morning as I close, I just got a couple of questions for you and we're going to go. Listen, what kind of fool are you? (laughs) What kind of fool am I? What is our lives, what, what do our lives say about the kind of fool we are? Does your life say, I'm the kind of fool that says, there is no God. I live how I want to live, when I want to live, and do whatever I want to do. If that's your life, you're a fool, according to the Bible. Or are you the kind of fool that says, I don't care what you think of my life. There is a God. He has redeemed and rescued my life from the pit. I deserve hell, but I'm not going because of Jesus. He paid a price for my sin. He saved me. He's redeemed me. And God, I'll be your fool every day until I'm dead because you've saved my life. You've saved my soul. What kind of fool are you this morning? It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Listen, this is not just a a day where we get to sing some good songs and we get to eat a a good lunch with our, our families. I believe Easter is a day of decision. Easter calls us to a day of decision. This is what I mean. When you read the the resurrection story, I got three options according to C.S. Lewis. Here's what they are. He's either a, a, a lunatic or he's a liar or we can call him Lord. This is what he says. He says you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So what do you say? This morning, who do you say Jesus is? Because Easter calls us to a point of decision. Is he a crazy person? If we went in the parking lot today and we saw somebody saying, I am God, we go, oh boy. Right? But Jesus didn't just say, I'm God and the Son of God. He proved it with every day of his life. He proved it with his sacrifice on a cross. And he proved it with the power of resurrection out of the grave. He's not a lunatic. He, he did what he said he would do. He's not a liar. So then have you made the decision that he's Lord? Because he has no other title. He will be nothing else. He can only be who he is. And he is God. Do you believe do you believe this morning? Strobel in his book, at the very end of his book, he says this. He says, in light of the convincing facts I had learned during my investigation, 
In the face of this overwhelming avalanche of evidence in the case for Christ, the great irony was this. It would require much more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to trust in Jesus of Nazareth. And he gave his life to Christ. Where does it leave us this morning, church? What do we do with this? What decision are you called to in this moment? I I love this verse, and this will be the last one we read. Paul encourages his son in the faith, Titus, in his book, Letter to Titus, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish. He's saying, Titus, I was there, man. I was a fool. I lived like a fool. I was disobedient. I was led astray. I was slaves to various passions and pleasures. I was passing my days in malice and in envy. I I was hated by others and hating other people. But, listen to this in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in Jesus, he saved us. Not because of the works by us done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, my friend. Jesus can do that for you this morning. Do you know him? Which is he? Are you going to walk out of here and live a life that says he's a lunatic, he's a liar? Are you going to make a decision today, the day we celebrate the truth of his resurrection, to say, no, no, he's Lord. And I'm I'm willing to be called a fool because of it. This is what I want to do. I wanted to contrast some of the complexity of the apologetic that we talked about this morning with the simplicity of salvation. Can we do that for a second? Just across the way there, we have South City kids. Our kids are over there being cared for and loved, and they're being told that they can know Jesus as their Savior. And we've simplified it down in such a way, you've heard of this, I'm sure, the ABCs of salvation. This is what they are. Listen very carefully. Admit that you're a sinner. We all know we've sinned. We all know we've done things that are wrong. We've all done things that separate us from God. We all know that. Admit it. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm I'm wrong. I've lived a wrong life. B, believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he was, that he was willing to give his life on a cross for you and for me, that he was willing to die, he was willing to go to hell and be raised again with the keys to death and the grave. Do you believe And see, have you confessed? Have you said to the world, this is who I want to be? I confess that I know Jesus and I want to know Jesus and I want him to change my life. It's the ABCs of salvation. It's very simple. This morning, have you done those things? Would you do me a favor? I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. It's not our heart at South City to to ever... uh, Single anyone out. That's never our heart. And so what I want to do, this is for you. Today, if you you would say, listen, I've never prayed that prayer. I've never admitted or believed or confessed that Jesus was Lord. I've never done that. And I want to do that today. Just with no one else looking but me. Would you you allow me just to to know that you're going to do that so I can pray for you? I'm not asking you to come down here. I'm not asking you to do anything like that. Would you just raise your hand and say, pray for me. I want to make that prayer today. I want to believe. Okay, anybody else? 
Thank you. Anyone else? I want to admit, I want to believe, I want to confess to the world, thank you. This is the day to say, Lord Jesus, I believe the eyewitness testimony. I believe the circumstantial testimony. I believe, God, that you are God. Anyone else? Just say, would you pray for me? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? One last one. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, maybe today you'd say this. Maybe you were like me and you knew a lot about God, but it hasn't made its way from your head to your heart and to your life. And you just need to say, Lord, would you change my heart? Would you help me start over? Would you help me to get the things that matter most, making the most sense in my life? May I give my life to eternity, not just to the things that are right in front of me. Would you change my heart? If that's you today, would you raise your hand? Say, Lord, I want to change. I tell you what, I'm going to pray a prayer, and, and as I pray this prayer, when we finish this prayer, I want you to know Daryl's going to sing a song, and, and we're going to worship for a moment, but, and I'm going to be down front here, and, and Pastor Jerry's going to be over here on this side. We have a couple of elders that are going to be in the back as well. So if you're, if you're questioning where your heart is with Jesus this morning, and you want to know, you want to answer this today, listen, don't go home, don't get in your car without knowing where you stand with God, please. So I'm just asking you, pray this prayer with me. You can borrow my words. You can go speak to those men in the back, or you can speak to these men up front, or you can pray where you are. God will do a work in your heart wherever you are if you'll just seek him and pray. Christians, would you pray? Would you believe this moment for God to do something that only he can do? Would you pray with me now? Father God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I fall short of your glory. I admit that I've messed up. And God, if you can change me, I believe you can. Would you please? Forgive me my sins. Change my heart. I believe that you died for me and that you were raised again on the third day. And Lord, may I confess it to the world. And may I choose to live for you the rest of my life with all that I am and all that I have. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you for saving me. And God's people said, amen, amen. Would you stand this morning with me? Listen, if you prayed that prayer with me, we would love to know about it. Would you please go tell one of those men, would you come up and tell one of us, would you do that? We just want to celebrate with you, and we want to be a blessing to you. Jesus said to the disciples, go and make disciples. He didn't just say, go and make converts. So we want to help you beyond just that prayer. We want to help you know him as a disciple. That's what we are as a church and who we want to be. Would you let us know that this morning? If you just need to come and pray, maybe there's something going on in your heart or your life. You just need to use this, this space and this altar, or you need a pastor to pray with you. We're here for you because we love you. And we would love the honor of praying with you if you'd let us. As we worship and sing, let's just give our hearts to the Lord. Can we do that right now?